Thank you. Good morning, brothers and sisters. We're uh, continuing our little story of Jeremiah this morning. And, and you remember, we're just trying to piece our way through his life, and we're trying to uh, look at the different sections of Scripture which, uh, which inform us about what's going on, uh, just trying to build a picture of what was happening in this man's life. Um, we, we, we got to the end yesterday where... Uh, the book of the law, the covenant, had been discovered. Josiah had gathered everybody together. There had been a great reading. Jeremiah was commissioned to go and speak throughout the cities of Judah and indeed in the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, and you remember we, uh, we finished, I think, in chapter 5 where we just saw that the, the response of the people was so disappointing. He got to the people on the streets and they wouldn't listen and he said, Ah, oh, that's because they're, they're poor and they're lowly people. I'll speak to the great men. It will be better. Uh, and the response, of course, was just as disappointing. Come with me to chapter 8, please, would you? Um, because we get a sense of how things deteriorated. Uh, we tried to capture something of the, uh, uh, the excitement in Josiah's day, where that law is found and men are gathered and uh, uh, the word of God is going to be carried forward. In chapter 8, at verse 4... Uh, we read this, Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Uh, why then is, is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceits. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course. And you get this idea that the word's gone out, they've heard it, but they've just not listened. Or if they listen, they listen for a while and then they returned to the kind of life that they had before. They turned again to their course. Uh, and, and, and verse 8 might just give us a little clue as to why this was happening. Verse 8 says, how do ye say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, Sorry, lo, certainly in vain he made it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. Now, the King James Version just doesn't quite get it there for us. The Revised Version says, But behold, the false pen of the scribes hath wrought falsely. Uh, and you can pick that up in other translations and just get the idea here that what was happening now is that this law has been found and these scribes, just as we know throughout Jewish history, uh, they would say, Ah, let me just expand on that for you. Let me just write down what that means. Let me just try and elaborate on what God is trying to say here. And they started to write things and they started to expand things. They started to explain things and build on the law of God. And, and of course they were doing it falsely. They were turning the law of truth, the word of truth, into something that it was not. They were changing things. And you can see how over time this would happen. Uh, it was in Josiah's 18th year that the law was found. And here we are, uh, you know, it's going to reign for a th further 13 years. And that 13-year that period was plenty of time for scribes to say, oh, we'll just take control here, we'll just elaborate, we'll just uh, put a little gloss on this for you. And plenty of time for the people to lose their enthusiasm. Uh, you, you, you will know what it's like when you return to work uh, after a week at Manitoulin. in all that excitement and enthusiasm you feel, uh, it seems by, by Monday lunchtime almost, it's lost as you return back to your, to your ordinary lifestyle. Uh, well, over a 13-year period, uh, it seemed that these people lost their enthusiasm 
for the word of God and it was having no impact. So that, that, that's, that's where we leave Jeremiah, uh, uh, where we left Jeremiah yesterday. In the days of Josiah, uh, this word had been found. He had done all he could to communicate it, uh, but not uh, successfully. Uh, we alluded yesterday to um, a temple address. I think I said that there were three of them. Uh, and we considered the first of these yesterday uh, in chapter 7. So we, we, we won't go to it particularly. Um, but in chapter 7, you will remember, this was at the time when Josiah was restoring the temple uh, and uh, Jeremiah would go and stand in the gate of the Lord's house and would speak about it. And his message was, don't put your trust in these, uh, in these bricks uh, that are being established behind me. Uh, this isn't going to happen. Um, uh, this isn't going to be a place that you can trust in unless you change your ways. Uh, and you remember how uh, the men didn't respond, uh, partly because... Um, the Scythian horde that swept down through uh, Canaan at the time uh, didn't affect them, so they thought, well, that's it, that's finished. Uh, and also partly because um, uh, they, they, they'd got their hopes a little bit uh, uh, on the time of Isaiah. Um, uh, you remember when he was prophesying, he was saying to Hezekiah, don't worry, the Assyrians will come, they'll camp at the door, but this city will not be taken. Uh, and we, we have... Uh, we, we have an attraction to that kind of, uh, of message from the Lord, don't we? And the people of their day did. Uh, they would think that they were going to be all right. They didn't need to worry. Um, just as in Hezekiah's day where all that great host came uh, and the angel of the Lord intervened and they awoke the following day and they were all dead men. Uh, uh, so too, perhaps, people thought that this would be the case here. Uh, come with me into chapter 11, please, where we get the, the second uh, temple address that uh, Jeremiah gives. Uh, and I'll read from, uh, from verse 14. Uh, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. For uh, what hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from thee? When thou, rejoice, when thou doest evil, then thou rejoicest. The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. For the Lord of hosts that planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee, for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense unto Baal. So here is the same kind of message that we're expecting uh, Jeremiah to be giving. We see it time and time again. This is possibly only part of a temple address that Jeremiah is giving, uh, and it's coming at a time when Josiah's reign is ending. Um, the religion that was available and, uh, and, uh, and being followed at the time was a religion of outward show. It was uh, uh, done for, um, uh, to be seen of men uh, and had no change on men's heart. Uh, and, and here is uh, the prophet saying it's like a green olive tree, but this green olive tree is going to be burned and destroyed. Uh, keep a bookmark in chapter 11, but come back with me to Psalm 52, please, if you would. Uh, here is a psalm about uh, 
the righteous being under threat uh, and the Lord intervening to remove the wicked and to establish the righteous uh, as a green olive tree. Uh, uh, you, you, you can read that this is a psalm of, uh, of David and in interestingly it's at the time of Doeg the Edomite according to the heading. Um, verse 8, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Uh, I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. So here are the sentiments and the words of David who, who feels that having trusted in the Almighty, having put in his trust in the mercy of God, he has been blessed because the Almighty has responded. Uh, this is because he was a man after God's own heart. The people of uh, uh, Jeremiah's time, of course, were completely different. They were trusting in outward things. They were trusting in other nations. They were trusting in their own strength. They had nothing to do with the, uh, with the true God of heaven. Uh, and as a consequence, the green olive tree, as they are described by Jeremiah, isn't going to be planted and certain and sure and well watered like this particular olive tree in 52, Psalm 52, but it's going to be plucked up and burnt and destroyed. And that was the message that Jeremiah was, given, uh, was giving. Um, it, it will be lovely to think, wouldn't it, that, uh, that he maybe chose this particular psalm because it might have been sung by the temple choirs behind him uh, as he was giving this particular address. That's speculation, of course, I've got no evidence for that. So this is Jeremiah's message uh, that he is giving to the people. Uh, before we get to the third temple address, which we've just had read for us in chapter 26, uh, let's just reflect a little bit uh, on the background that's going on here. Because as we get to the reign, the end of the reign of Josiah, and we move into the days of Jehoiakim, uh, dramatic changes are occurring. Uh, in 612 BC, uh, Babylon uh, took Nineveh. It besieged Nineveh and it took it. And this time there was no Scythian horde sweeping through uh, to distract the invaders. Uh, so Assyria is now uh, um, being defeated. Babylon in the north are in the ascendancy, uh, and Egypt is going to take uh, uh, this as a moment to uh, move in on Assyrian territory. And Egypt is going to move north to try and capture some of the territory that Assyria would have to give up. Uh, and of course, it's as Egypt moves north that Josiah confronts him at Megiddo. Uh, um, Egypt was going all the way up to, uh, uh, to, to the uh, territories of Assyria, uh, and Josiah intervenes. Uh, come with me to uh, Second Chronicles 35, please. Let's just uh, look at the history here. Second Chronicles chapter 35, we have this account of Pharaoh Necho going north uh, and his, uh, his fight with Josiah. Uh, in verse 20, chapter 35. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. Uh, but he sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. And Josiah uh, didn't listen to this message. He's, uh, he's still going to inter intervene uh, and interfere indeed 
with this particular activity uh, and as a consequence uh, Josiah is killed and you know it well uh, but, but verse 25 has got the lamentation of Jeremiah for this king um, and, and, and we ought to just appreciate how Jeremiah is going to feel at this point up to this particular stage the first uh, um, uh, early years of his ministry Josiah has been on the throne Josiah a man who was moved by God's word Josiah a king who wanted to reform and wanted to do the right things he was struggling to get the nation to do the same but he was a man who was moved by God's word so when he goes verse 25 Jeremiah lamented for Josiah and all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah in their lamentations to this day and made them an ordinance in Israel and behold they are written in the lamentations um, that's not been done for any other king and Jeremiah here is making these ordinances and lamentations uh, uh, for this particular king now who has gone um, some wonder whether Lamentations 4 verse 20 uh, you could have a look at that later uh, might be such a lamentation and of course they l lament King Josiah because of his good deeds the rest of his act verse 25 uh, and his goodness according to that which was written in the law of the Lord uh, uh, that's how they describe him and the word goodness there which is translated as good deeds or loving kindness elsewhere is usually reserved for the work of the Almighty it's not used of men very often and here it's ascribed to this King Josiah as if he has embraced the work of God and he has wanted to do these things uh, in order that he could show God's ways uh, to these people. Uh, come back with me to Jeremiah 22 then please where um, we read of this little lamentation of Jeremiah for the loss of this great king. Jeremiah 22, this is actually in a, in a conversation he's, uh, he's having about Jehoiakim, but he refers to Jehoi uh, Jehoiakim's father. Uh, verse 15, uh, Shalt thou reign because thou closest thyself in cedar, that, that's to Jehoiakim, did not thy father, Josiah, eat and drink and do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? Now, now, now we read that and it looks very straightforward, doesn't it? This is what Josiah did, judging the cause of the poor and the needy. Uh, then it was well with him. Um, but we miss that last little phrase, which was, was not this to know me? And, and, and just reflect on that, brothers and sisters, and if ever you want to do a little bit of research, just follow that principle through Scripture, uh, finding men and women and teachings where we are instructed to do the will of God in order that we may get to know him. It's nice to do good things to other people. It's nice to be a Christ-like person to other people. But it's only when we start to do this do we get to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his heavenly father uh, and that was the motive he was doing it Jeremiah uh, Josiah was doing these things in order that he could get to know his God better and that's how we will do, we, that's how we will make progress uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ tells us to uh, to love our enemies 
uh, well, you can uh, get your concordances out, you can study that phrase, and you can follow all the cross-references, and you can look at it in all different languages and all different translations, but until you begin to put that into practice, to love your enemy, then you'll never really know what it means. And we do the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ because we want to know him and his Father. And that's how Josiah was motivated. Uh, and we do well to remember that. So here is, uh, is Jeremiah uh, lamenting this particular uh, passing of this king. And after this, um, Jehoahaz very briefly is going to reign just for three months. Uh, he wasn't the eldest son of Josiah, uh, so he was removed by Nico. You can read of that in Second Chronicles 36. Uh, we're not going there. But Jeremiah in this same chapter has a comment on it, actually, in verse 10. Uh, weep not for the dead, neither bemoan him, but weep sore for him that goeth away. And that was Jehoahaz, who was only on the throne for three months. Uh, for he shall return no more, nor see his, his native country. For thus saith the Lord, touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah his father, which went forth out of his place, he shall not return thither any more, but he shall die in the place whither they have led him captive. He shall see this land no more. So Jeremiah knows that uh, this very brief reign of Jehoahaz, uh, who we don't need to uh, concentrate on in these classes, um, uh, he just appears on the scene and is taken away uh, by Necho. And the eldest son, Jehoiakim uh, is put on the throne. And you can read from verse 13 then onwards about this man. Uh, and the introduction to him is not good. He is an individual who will satisfy himself, who will accumulate wealth, who will uh, do all he can to pleasure, uh, for, for pleasure and to seek his own desires. He will do nothing to serve the Almighty God. And when he comes to the throne, Jeremiah's life is suddenly going to become very different. Up to this stage, he's been operating under the, under the period of a king who loved the word of God and wanted to make change. Now Jeremiah is speaking his message in, a, in the time of a king who is decidedly ungodly. And this is where we get the third temple address. So perhaps you just go to chapter 26, please, which we've uh, already considered briefly together. And it's not very different uh, to the first two temple addresses. It's all about change and, uh, and repentance and becoming different people, but now it's in a very different world. So verse 1, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word from the Lord. Uh, so, so, so Jeremiah now has to really steel himself to deliver this because this is not going to be well received. Um, uh, and the Lord tells him in verse 2 to stand in the court of the Lord's house, speak unto all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command, me, command thee. Um, verse 3, uh, if so be they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way that I may repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them. So here is the Lord who uh, still wants to save. 
Here is the Lord who is outlining a plan of destruction, but he still wants to save his people. And he's sending his prophet, not just because he wants to make it difficult for Jeremiah, not just because he wants to uh, uh, um, make life uncomfortable for this godly individual, but because he wants to save his people. There's still time, there's still chance uh, for them to turn and change their ways. But if not, if they will not, then verse 6 I will make this house like Shiloh. Uh, remember the destruction we talked about yesterday and the priesthood of Eli coming to an end? Uh, well, that's what will happen to this nation. It will come to an end. Uh, so he delivers this message with some courage. Uh, and it might have been done at a feast day. Verse 2 indicates that uh, there were plenty there. All the cities of Judah uh, had come up to worship. So maybe on some public feast day, um, uh, I don't know which one, uh, Jeremiah stands in the temple court amidst all these crowds and delivers this message. Uh, and of course, um, it's not well received. Uh, verse 7 tells us that priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking... Uh, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die. We've not seen this before. Uh, Jeremiah has been able to witness, uh, albeit an unpalatable message, but he's, uh, he's not suffered uh, uh, any abuse at all, and now he delivers his message, and it's different in the days of Jehoiakim. And the crowds, the priests, the people, the prophets, they all take him uh, and they say, we're going to kill you for this. So, so, so Jeremiah's life is, is, is really very, very different, isn't it? Uh, on this occasion, in verse 10, we read on this far, that the princes of Judah and their masters, some individuals who were godly, wisdom individuals, perhaps still under the influence of Josiah, uh, these princes, they say, uh, no, 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 we're not just going to kill him. We're going to have a proper uh, hearing to see what's gone on and see whether or not he, he is worthy of death. So the princes intervene, and then there's going to be some kind of ordered discussion about uh, Jeremiah and what he's saying. So in verse 10, these, uh, these princes come uh, and a proper hearing is set out. Verse 11, the priests and the prophets lay the charges. So this man is worthy to die. Why? Because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard. So the charges are now laid out uh, before all the people uh, and before all the princes. Uh, and Jeremiah uh, is able to give his own defense from verses uh, 12 to about 15. Um, more a defiance than a defense, actually. Um, uh, he's absolutely determined to deliver this message, um, and he's not going to change anything just because he's placed under arrest and just because he's under threat of death. That's wonderful, isn't it? He's going to say the same things. So verse 13, there it is. Therefore now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord. Uh, that's the message he's got. So, so, so this is a man of great courage, uh, as, as he delivers this message to the people. Uh, and at this stage, the princes are on his side. They're, they're listening to this. They think it's unreasonable that men want to kill him. So, so they, they um, look back in their laws of precedence and they find example, an example of the past 
where a prophet had said something which the king didn't particularly like, but the king listened and changed. And they quote the example of Micah in verse 18 uh, in the days of Hezekiah. So, uh, verse 18, Micah the Moreshthite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be ploughed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps. Uh, Verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear for the Lord, and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil? Uh, so, so, So the princes here... Uh, are building a legal case. They're saying, well, do you remember that occasion where Micah spoke out and said what was going to happen? And Hezekiah listened, repented, changed, and as a consequence, Jerusalem was saved. So so, so they're presenting uh, a precedent, case law, from the past where uh, 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 there's evidence here that Jeremiah ought not to be killed. The priests, however, who are bent on destroying Jeremiah... Uh, they have their own precedents. Uh, verse 20. There was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kiriath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land, according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim, the king, and all his mighty men, and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. And if you read on, you'll find that Urijah fled to Egypt when he was under threat of death. Uh, and Jehoiakim sent to Egypt and brought him back and had him killed. So the priests have got their own uh, um, precedent here, their own example. Uh, why don't we do like uh, like uh, was done to this particular prophet, uh, say the priests? So, so two sides, two arguments, uh, both got precedents, but of course this is in the reign of Jehoiakim. And it's the King Jehoiakim here, who had called out of Egypt and slain this prophet for the words that he had spoken. So that's carrying weight in this debate now that's going on. Uh, And as a consequence, uh, Jeremiah uh, is under great danger. Uh, And in fact, the crowd would probably have taken him and killed him there and then. Verse 24, had it not been for the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, uh, that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So someone intervenes here, a Ahikam, uh, and takes Jeremiah and gets him out of the way so that he is saved from death. So, so, so chapter 26 um, it, it is painting for us a very different climate in which Jeremiah is having to operate, and his life hangs in the balance, and he's rescued by the hand of a Ahikam uh, under the Lord's divine guidance, no doubt. So Jeremiah is safe for now, but it's far better that he's out of Jerusalem. He ought to get out of the way uh, because people are looking to kill him. So, so I suggest, as, as I'm trying to piece together this little life of, uh, of Jeremiah, having had a, a reasonably comfortable period where he could preach under Josiah's time, things have changed. And his first temple address that he gives in the days of Jehoiakim, it's a very different world. And he now has to leave Jerusalem uh, and get out of the way. And I, and I just wonder whether these three signs that we know quite well are taking place initially whilst Jeremiah is out of Jerusalem. So let's have a look at uh, at chapter 13, shall we? Um, 
beyond, beyond Jerusalem and outside Judea, Babylon is continuing to expand. Um, Egypt is still strong in the south. Uh, the Battle of Carchemish um, takes place in 605 BC, uh, and that was won by Nebuchadnezzar, who was uh, a general at the time, but he was quickly to become king. Uh, and, 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 and Jehoiakim is quickly going to become a vassal state of Babylon rather than a vassal state uh, of Egypt. So, so um, Jeremiah has fled north, I suggest, uh, and we read of him taking this linen girdle in 13 verse 1, um, and you remember how he has to wear it, and then he's told to uh, bury it in the banks of the Euphrates and he leaves it there for a while and then he's told by the Lord after many days to go and uh, recover it and of course it's, uh, it's good for nothing. The, the thing has rotted away uh, and it's a, it's a disappointing garment which cannot be used. Uh, and of course there's, uh, there's a number of things going on here. The Lord is, is saying Israel were like this to me. I, I, I held them close. They were as close as one could be. Uh, to me, I wanted them to be something special, and now they're spoiled and soiled and 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 rotten and good for nothing. Uh, that's how this people of Judah were uh, in his eyes. Um, God wanted them to be close, and verse eleven just uh, uh, gives us a little insight into his thinking. Uh, for as for the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory. Uh, isn't that just, just, just so lovely that the Almighty is wanting that with his people? I've called you because I want you to be these things, um, but they would not. Uh, and, and he's calling you and me, brothers and sisters, and wanting that same kind of relationship with you and me. Let, let, let's make sure that uh, we're embracing that so that we can be in this lovely relationship with the Almighty uh, and not find ourselves resisting uh, as the people of Israel do. So, so there's a little sense of the Almighty's disappointment here. Um, and there's also a probably a little message here for Jeremiah, who's fled north, possibly all the way up to Euphrates. He might even at this point be in contact with others who have been taken into captivity. He might be in contact with them. Um, but, but it was when this girdle was at a distance and planted in the Euphrates riverbank that it becomes dirty and soiled and good for nothing. And maybe the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, you are no good at a distance. Your message might be unpalatable, your message might not be good, but I want you back in Jerusalem where you can witness to these people. Uh, it's no good running away here. So Jeremiah goes back to Jerusalem. And in verse 12, we read about his second sign. And this time it's a sign directly for the people. Uh, and, and you get a sense here how impatient the people are with the word of God. Uh, verse 12 um, therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they shall say unto them, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Uh, then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and all the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness and then destruction. Uh, but but you'll, you'll notice the way that little verse is set out there in verse 12. The people just won't let him finish. 
Um, uh, Jeremiah begins, every bottle will be filled with wine. And then they won't let him finish. They just intervene and say, oh, tell us something new. Bottles are filled with wine all the time. We're not going to listen to any more. They wouldn't listen to the message. They're, they're, they're uh, interrupting him. Uh, even in that first sentence, such is their impatience in listening to the word of God. Uh, come with me then to chapter uh, uh, 18 and 19, where we get the, uh, the, uh, the sign of the, pro, uh, the potter uh, and the clay. Uh, and this, of course, is a, is a, a lovely theme, isn't it, that we find through scriptures. Uh, and I'm not going to elaborate on it uh, here in this class. Uh, except to point out in 18 and verse 4, um, as far as I can see, this is the only occasion where the Lord is just offering some willingness to take the pot, take the clay, and reform it, and reshape it. I will still work with you. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 18, the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again. Another vessel has seemed good to the potter to make it. Um, we don't get that in Isaiah, we don't get that in Romans, where this theme uh, also comes out. But here is God saying, uh, I will take this ball of clay, I will try again, I will reform it uh, and reshape it so that it can be something else. Uh, but, but the real sign is coming in chapter 19, isn't it, where this, this earthen pot is taken. And we just ought to, to look where this is taking place, because verse 2 of chapter 19 tells us that this is happening in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now this is where children were sacrificed in the time of Manasseh. Was anything ever so horrid done in the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah? Was anything so wicked ever done? The Lord never even thought of that, uh, so he says. Uh, and yet, here in this place, child sacrifice had occurred. Uh, and, and there's just a hint here that it might have restarted in the days of Jehoiakim. So low was this king, so despicable was this man. Verse 4, for example, uh, Because they have forsaken me, and have estranged this place, and burned incense in it unto other gods, which neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. So maybe Jeremiah has gone to this place and he's prophesying and preaching against them because they have resumed this despicable sacrifice of children. And listen to this prophecy, he says, because at the end of verse 3, this is a prophecy that will make his ears tingle. Uh, and we, we mentioned that, didn't we? Three times we get that in Scripture. Uh, so there's a strong prophecy that then follows that if the people do not change, I will come and I will destroy this city of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 9, and I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they shall eat every one the flesh uh, of his friend in the siege and straightness wherewith their enemies, and they shall seek their lives, uh, and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. And then at that point, Jeremiah, take this, uh, this earthen pot and smash it as a real visual aid to the smashing of Jerusalem. That would have a very dramatic effect. You can imagine him uh, um, speaking this prophecy in a very uh, a dramatic way on the, over the valley of Hinnom and then smashing the pot and saying, that's what's going to happen uh, to Jerusalem. 
Uh, and of course, uh, he has to go and repeat this uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, so verse 14, he, he goes with another pot and he goes and says the same kind of prophecy in just the same way, uh, smashing the pot here uh, in the middle of Jerusalem. A very dramatic uh, reintroduction back to the scene in Jerusalem where he's prophesying and explaining what will come on this place. And of course, the people don't like it. And as we get into chapter 20, we're introduced to Pasha, the son of Imma, the priest, who is going to take Jeremiah and he's going to beat him and he's going to place him in the stocks. Uh, and you probably know that that word for stocks here um, has another meaning, which is to turn over. We can't be sure whether that means it was some kind of torture that Jeremiah was going through or whether he was placed in stocks until his mind was turned. In other words, uh, this would be a way of persuading him to change his mind and his message. Um, what, 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 whatever, brothers and sisters, this was not going to be a pleasant occasion for Jeremiah. Uh, you can see now how his life has changed very dramatically. He's been true to the word. He's been faithful in his witness. He is suffering personally now. He's already escaped threat of death once. He's now under arrest. He's now in the marketplace um, being humiliated. All those who would pass by would laugh and say, so much for your prophecies now. Jeremiah is unchanging. Uh, this is just such an example, isn't it? Um, uh, Pasha um, whose name means prosperity roundabout, Jeremiah says, well, you're now going to be called Magor Misabib. Terror on every side. Uh, terror will be coming. Uh, and in verse 4 of chapter 20, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will make a terror to thee and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. And that's the first time Jeremiah has said by whom this destruction would come. He's now introducing the idea that the invading army from the north is going to be uh, uh, Babylon. Um, and he's setting out in greater detail the destruction that will come upon uh, Jerusalem. Uh, as far as I can see, as you read through chapter 20, this is the only time that Jeremiah um, allows himself to complain, if that's the right word, to God for his position. He, he's just um, offloading to God and saying, um, do I really have to do this? Are you, are you really wanting me to do this? Can you not see how difficult it is that I'm having to give this message? Do you not know how unpleasant my life is? Um, and we get a real insight there, don't we, into the, uh, into the mind of the prophet as he continues with his work. Um, interestingly, of course, he doesn't, he doesn't move to the right or to the left from his work. He just sticks with it uh, and continues to deliver uh, the message. Let's move over to chapter 36 then, please. <clears throat> where we're told this is now taking place in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Uh, and, and this is the well-known account of, uh, of Baruch and the role and uh, all the things being written out. 
Um, first time we're introduced to Baruch, the son of Neriah. Uh, and it seems that the writing is being done. We've not come across Jeremiah writing this out before, but the writing is now being done because he's not allowed to speak in the temple courtyard. He's, he's given three great addresses. He's gone there and he's, uh, he's smashed this earthen vessel saying this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And he's been arrested and punished as a consequence. And now he's no longer able to do this. Uh, verse 5 suggests that, doesn't it? Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am shut up. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Or I am shut out. But he is now prevented from going into the house of the Lord. Uh, and, and there would be many a man of God who would say at that point, well, we've tried and that door's closed. So we'll go and do something else now. We'll, we'll go and try somewhere else. Or, or we'll just stop. Well, not Jeremiah. He's compelled to make sure this message goes forward. So just because he can't go into the temple and speak it, he says to Baruch, I'm going to write this out for you. You'll have to go and you'll have to speak it. So let me write it out. And here's this lovely picture of inspiration that we get in the text, don't we, of the message being given and Jeremiah writing it, passing it to another, and he's going to read it and pass on the message faithfully. Uh, to the people. And, and just, as we, just as we touched on the motives of Almighty God who wanted to change his people and save his people, um, interestingly in this chapter we see that these are still the motives of Jeremiah. Look at verse 7 of chapter 36. It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return everyone from his evil way. It, it might be that they'll change. So, so, so if you get the impression that Jeremiah is just going through the motions, he's trying time and time again and repeating the message because that's what the Lord's employing him to do, uh, it's not that at all. He's got a real desire to try and change these people. It might be that there'll be someone in the crowd who'll just listen and change his ways, uh, says Jeremiah. Uh, and, and, and that as a motive for our preaching... Um, is unequaled, isn't it? Uh, I, 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 I don't know what your motives might be. I don't know how it might work in your ecclesia. Uh, often these things are done because we think it's an ecclesial responsibility and we have our preaching programs and off we go and off we do it. And hey, someone might respond, they might not. Well, uh, this is the much better motive, isn't it? Let's do it. There might be someone out there. And wouldn't it be lovely if there was? So that was still Jeremiah's position. Um, and, uh, and Baruch, who's being very brave here, he knows what happened to Jeremiah when he went and spoke in the temple court. Um, he has to be very brave here. Uh, so he goes, um, and in verse 10, he's about to read the book, but he positions himself by the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe. That was a friend. That was a friend of Jeremiah. So he's going to uh, a, a safe part uh, of this uh, this particular uh, section of the city. Uh, and uh, uh, the princes were there who'd saved Jeremiah before uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 12. So, so um, uh, Baruch is positioning himself uh, um, in, in as safe a corner of, the, world, uh, of the, uh, the city as he can. And he's then going to read. And when the word of God is read... These words are powerful. Uh, you remember in verse 16 that when they heard this, 
um, they were afraid, both one and the other. It was quite a, a powerful thing. And of course, the word of God is still a powerful thing. Um, let's not forget that. Um, these days we're becoming ever more inventive in our preaching and, and, and I applaud that brothers and sisters I've, I've got no difficulty with that but let's not forget that it's only the word of God that will change people it's only the word of God that has the power to bring about salvation to individuals uh, and this word uh, has a real impact on them um, the audience turned with fear and they must tell the king uh, but this little group realized that they needed to get Jeremiah to a place of safety before the king heard of it. So Jeremiah was uh, put to a place of safety where he would not be found. The roll goes to the king, as you know, and it was read out to the king, and the king does nothing but rip it up and burn it on the fire. Um, it's a real sadness, isn't it, that, uh, that that was the response of this particular man. But it indicates how low he was. Jeremiah was, uh, 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 an arrest warrant was issued against Jeremiah, but they couldn't find him because he'd been uh, taken away to a place of safety. Um, we, we, we contrast Jehoiakim's response with that of Josiah. He found the law of the Lord and he was so excited. Jehoiakim has been presented with the law of the Lord and he puts it on the fire and burns it. And that's a real indictment, isn't it? Now, the, the other neat little piece of history, which I'm sure you've appreciated before, is that just as this is happening in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar, which is just the same period, through Daniel, uh, interpretation is being given and the message is being given to a Gentile king. Here we have a Jewish king who's refusing to listen to the word of the law and destroying it. And over in Babylon, Daniel is explaining the ways of Almighty God uh, by interpreting the dream in Daniel chapter 2 to King Nebuchadnezzar, which of course is going to bring about the conversion of that man. So just as Israel were turning their back on the law of the Lord, um, uh, the Lord was making sure that uh, the word was continuing this time in Gentile lands. Uh, we'll, we'll just just finish by uh, uh, considering very quickly uh, Jehoiakim's demise. Uh, it's an eleven-year reign, but it's a it's a very different uh, a very uh, different reign to that of Josiah. Um, he surrounded himself with false prophets. He, he liked it that way. Jeremiah complained against them. I, we, we may have looked, have looked a little bit at. Uh, at chapter 14 yesterday. Um, let's look at chapter 23 because these false prophets who um, were in the court of Jehoiakim had a lifestyle to match their wicked words. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 23 um, and verse 9, for example. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, and I am like a man whom wine hath overcome because, the, because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. For the land is full of adulterers, and because of swearing, the land mourneth. 
The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, and their force is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house I have found their wickedness, saith the Lord. Uh, so, so these people who were not only speaking uh, ill, were behaving in an awful way as well. They prophesy falsely. They say things that people want to hear. They do not speak truth, as Jeremiah was speaking truth. Uh, they were saying words which the people loved. And we'll just close by looking at chapter 5, verse 31. Well, verse 30 of chapter 5. A wonderful and horrible thing is omitted in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? Uh, and, and that's very much the, the position we're in, isn't it? People are listening only to messages that they want to hear. Politicians change their message to say what people want to hear. And we see that throughout Scripture. And Jeremiah, who is in possession of words of truth, is going to stand by that. The temptation is to adjust the truth slightly. I'll just remove that little bit, I'll not emphasize that bit quite as much, and I'll just overemphasize this bit, and I'll try and make it a little more palatable for today's audience, um, and we'll give them something they want to hear. And you must have uh, uh, come across that kind of debate, or felt that kind of argument. The word of truth is the word of truth, and it needs to be presented in its fullness and its entirety with courage and conviction, brothers and sisters, because that's the only thing that will bring about man's salvation, even in these wicked times. Let us have the same confidence and conviction of Jeremiah to do these things in these last days.